And I guess that will only be an acceleration or amplification of a dynamic that already exists, which is that powerful people have generally also been able to get themselves, secure themselves through pressure, maybe different standards right. in certain cases. Well, and famously at Facebook, you know, there's a program specifically to look at for high-level accounts called XCheck, uh, which ended up getting them in trouble in India. Right. Yes, exactly. Okay, well, that brings us. Uh, thank you uh, for, for throwing me that I one. I am making the soft pitch, <laughs> underhand pitch motion. Too. Literally. Uh, we're in a studio together, <laughs> and I'm catching it. Welcome to the weekly news hit episode of Moderated Content with myself, Evelyn Dweck, and Alex Stamos. It has been around 72 hours since we dropped an episode, so I hope you haven't been missing us too much over your spooky Halloween weekend. Unfortunately, I think we have to start in the same place where we left off, which is Musk. And in 72 hours, he has made a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of new news. I don't know, Alex, where do, where do you want to start? My gripe with Musk over the weekend is actually with the reporters. Everyone's saying he's definitely going to set up a content moderation council as a result of the fact that he tweeted once that he was thinking about this, which, you know, can we not retweet uh, or report on Musk tweets as if they are more than thought bubbles until we actually see some follow through. Yeah. You know, he immediately saw the complexity that he was jumping into, said, you know, no changes have been made, which I think is actually continues to be true, is there's no evidence that any actual policies have changed at Twitter, but that there wouldn't be any changes until there's this content moderation council. That lasted several hours until he started replying again to people complaining to him about content moderation decisions, saying he's going to look into it, which seems inconsistent with the idea that he's going to set up his blue ribbon panel to be working on this. He is the content moderation council with his diverse viewpoints all contained within his singular head. Uh-huh. Right, right, right. Just like he is now the entire board of directors. He fired the, the rest of the board of directors, which sometimes happens when a company goes private, although often when a company goes private under a private equity firm, you end up with still a functional board. It's just every member of the board represents a different investor. He's a board of one. He's a content moderation council of one. These are jobs that normal normally are done by dozens of humans, but apparently he has the ability to do that all while also running a rocket company and a car company and a boring company uh, that is digging holes in LA. And also apparently having time to tweet more than I find time to tweet with running my my one single job. So that's good fun. And being a very involved father on the the children he has with, with... I think three different women now. Of yeah. course, uh, it's it's really quite impressive. Yes, and of course the oversight board uh, of of Meta jumped into this debate as well with basically a hand wave saying, "Hey Musk, if you're interested in the content moderation council, here's one we set up earlier." Mike Masnick had a great tweet saying, "Oh, someone put the sales department in front of the oversight board's Twitter account," which I yeah. thought was very funny. So, which is it is an interesting question. I mean, this is exactly what the oversight board the people on it want is, you know, in theory, the oversight board is an independent nonprofit. It has an independent board. It is not run by Facebook, but its only revenue comes from Facebook right now, right? It only has one client in Facebook. And I think they are desperately looking for another platform to say this huge talent, you know, talent pool that you've built, which is actually quite an impressive pool of, you know, academics who have studied speech issues around the world. You know, we're going to pay you for, for access to them as well. The idea that Musk would use something that Mark Zuckerberg had already set up and blessed uh, for his own content moderation, I think, is close to zero, right? Like, this, whatever, if he sets up a content moderation council, it is going to be, you know, VCs who have absolutely no operational experience and a, a couple of, of guys he picked off of Twitter. I mean, just effectively a clown car of people pouring out of a, a VW ban smoking some pot and then deciding what speech looks like for the entire globe. Excellent. You know, experimental approaches, uh, <laughs> 
laboratories of online governance, who knows what could, could come up. You did say that there is no evidence that there's been any change in the in the standards on, yes. on Twitter. Um, and we talked about this last time in the context of the hate speech, that there'd been an, a huge influx. And there's been an update from Twitter on that in the days since. Right. So there has been, you know, kind of more empirical evidence that the amount of resultant prevalence of hate speech has gone up, right? The number of tweets that are making it through and that people are actually seeing that have hateful slurs especially racial slurs, it seems, as well as anti-Semitic content, has gone up. Yoel Roth, uh, who's the, the head of safety and integrity at Twitter, and a friend of mine and somebody I think is a really positive actor in this space. Seconded. Somebody who has survived so far, right? Like, the, the, unfortunately, the clock is ticking for Yoel. The odds of him being able to survive the Musk regime, I think, is extremely low. But right now, he is doing everything he can, clearly, to hold on with his fingernails and to try to salvage something from the, the mess that's happened so far. And he tweeted that the rules had not changed on hateful conduct, but that there had been an increase in hate speech that, that came from a relatively small number of accounts. So it does seem, as we discussed over the weekend, clearly there are groups of people who have been emboldened, who are organizing on Telegram, on 8chan, on places like that, who have come to try to flood Twitter with hate speech. And that is causing an impact, but it's not because Twitter changed their rules. It's because they just don't have the ability to handle this much inflow up front. And so uh, we will see if that stabilizes as those people get kind of banned or kicked off and bored. Um, and we'll see whether or not any of these rules actually do change and if the enforcement changes. My expectation is that the day-to-day -day hate speech enfor enforcement will not change. But what you will see is people get banned under it and then appeal to Musk and then get and so you're going to have this kind of crazy model where your odds of coming out of Twitter jail because you're able to appeal or your friends are able to appeal to Musk to get it overturned is going to be much higher. And so you'll have a, a kind of continuous low-level conflict between the day-to-day -day content moderation at Twitter and Musk's decisions, but it's not clear exactly how that's going to work yet. Right. And I guess that will only be an acceleration or amplification of a dynamic that already exists, which is that powerful people have generally also been able to get themselves, secure themselves through pressure, maybe different standards right. in certain cases. Well, and famously at Facebook, you know, there's a program specifically to look at for high level accounts called XCheck, uh, which ended up getting them in trouble in India. Right. Yes, exactly. Okay, well, that brings us. Uh, thank you uh, for, for throwing me that I one. I am making the soft pitch, <laughs> underhand pitch motion. To Literally. Uh, we're in a studio together <laughs> and I'm catching it. Um, so it's a good segue to a small update on a story that we covered at length. The other story that we've spent a lot of time on, which is the story about the fiasco in India over the wires now confirmed fabricated stories about Meta's relationship with a BJP official. In the last few days, that BJP official has filed defamation and other claims uh, against the editors of The Wire. Those are you know, criminal provisions in India, and The Wire itself has also filed claims against its editor. And over the weekend, a number of editors of The Wire, their homes were raided by the police and their phones and laptops seized. So it's a tragic end. Um, no one, you know, there were lots of questions raised about the story at the start, but this is a very dramatic escalation in, in this story. Yeah, and a sad one and one that we've predicted, you know, you and I have talked about a couple of times, the fact that they had named actual Indian citizens meant that, you know, despite the fact that there's no way Meta was going to file criminal charges, that a political operative for the BJP clearly is. It, you know, Indian politics is no holds barred, and it looks like the BJP and their allies are going to use this as to try to push for to destroy the wire. And perhaps this is also 
to send a message to the rest of the opposition press that if you make any little mistake that they can hold on to. Now, this wasn't a little mistake, right? Like, this is straight-up faked evidence. Um, but the fact that The Wire is going after, I believe not an editor, but a contributor, uh, Devesh Kumar, who's effectively kind of like their technical contributor, who was a full-time employee, but was a contractor at this point. His relationship to them is a little bit complicated. Not so complicated, though, that the evidence he apparently faked couldn't be included as core evidence, and then he was backed over and over again. So I think is really dodging responsibility for The Wire to pin this on one guy when they made an intentional editorial decision not to double-check, not to get different sources, and then doubled down over and over and over again. At any moment, they could have pulled back, and instead they decided to kind of put these snarky posts out. Their supporters called me and other people names, you know, for colonialists and effectively, you know, the Indian version of Gringo for having these opinions and for, for telling the truth instead of going and looking at it. And so for them to now turn around and say it's not their problem and that it was just one guy, I think is totally unfair to that one person. Yeah, there's good reasons why trust in the editorial systems at The Wire has been undermined for all of this, but it is you know a sad further constriction of the free press and civil society in the country. Going back to the idea that Twitter hasn't changed its standards, we are heading into the final stretch of the midterms, and the big question about whether Twitter would adopt a very different approach before in that final period seems to be answered in the negative. You know, Musk has said he doesn't really expect any big changes, as you said. So tell us what you're seeing across the industry there. Right. So our group, the Stanford Internet Observatory, is one of the two academic institutions that run the Election Integrity Partnership, eipartnership.net. And on our blog, we recently posted an analysis of platform policies around election disinformation. Not going to go into all the details except to say they are they are seriously improved from the early 2020 cycle. Twitter rates quite highly in our eyes. I have everybody but core Facebook. Instagram turns out to be weaker. TikTok and YouTube both doing much better, but having some holes in their policies. I think the interesting question here is it, it's clearly they're not going to change policies between now and the midterms. But there is talk of Musk firing a huge percentage of Twitter employees. It turns out you know, November 1st, tomorrow, as we record this, is a big vesting date for Twitter employees. You know, for those of you who don't know, when you work in Silicon Valley, especially for a large public company, a large percentage of your income actually comes from stock, usually things called RSUs, restricted stock units, which is, you know, goes up and it goes down, but it's generally something people can depend on of happening. And tomorrow is a day where a significant percentage of the income for a lot of these people is going to be paid out traditionally what they would do is they get stock in like a Schwab account and then during a window in which employees are allowed to sell and buy stock, they could sell it and turn it into cash. Because Twitter stock doesn't exist anymore, it's all held by Musk, he effectively has to pay straight up bonuses, right? They're just going to get cash for what that stock was. That's an obligation he bought. Twitter has a, a contractual obligation to these employees for this income and that is something that he bought when he bought Twitter, just as he bought all of Twitter's other debts. And it looks like he is setting things up to try to get rid of a lot of people and to not pay that. Which one is going to be a full employment plan for the San Francisco-based employment lawyers because, you know, California has all kinds of rules that explicitly don't allow you to do this kind of shenanigans. But I think, you know, for the, the purposes of this podcast, which is not an employment law podcast, for the midterms, I think the interesting question is, does that affect even though they're not going to rewrite any policies, is in fact their ability to actually enforce policies. And I think that's one of the big questions that we'll be looking at at EIP. Is is there a significant change in the, 
you know, how quickly tweets are labeled, how quickly things are taken down, whether or not more junk makes it through just because the people who used to have that as their job have now been fired. And so when you create this much chaos inside of a company, even the people who survive are spending all day thinking about themselves and not actually doing their jobs. This is a really bad week for people at Twitter to not do their jobs. And so, you know, what kind of impact that has is going to be interesting. We're not an employment law podcast yet, but we might have to be one. There is, uh, in other news, Musk has apparently fired the top executives uh, at the company for cause in order to avoid paying large bonuses that they were due to receive as part of their package. And so this is all, this is going to, you know, it, it, it's massive layoffs of Twitter, massive hiring schemes at all the law firms uh, across the country as we go back to court um, in a number of places. On the midterms front, how much variation is there across the platforms and how much of a difference does it make between the variation between the, the them? So there's a I mean, pretty decent amount of variation in the policies. They, they all have policies around, for example, violence against election workers and poll workers. But in some cases, which we rated lower, they don't have specific policies about that. They just kind of roll it up in their general threats. We don't believe that's enough. Like we are facing, for folks who have been paying attention, uh, you know, uh, you have people with guns standing outside ballot boxes. Um, you have death threats against election workers. You have crazy theories being spun about both elected leaders, employees of elections, um, as well as volunteers. There's a real threat of physical harm that is overlaying all of this work. And, and a significant percentage of volunteers have said they're not going to volunteer anymore to work in elections that, you know, the little old ladies who are nice enough to sit there all day and to hand you your ballot and then to make sure that you sign it correctly and it gets dropped in the box. They're not doing that. They're doing that out of the good of their heart. They're, they're not going to volunteer to put themselves in physical risk. And so, you know, that's one of the areas where I think there has been some variation is, is how explicit the rules are around that kind of violence. Some things around offers to buy and sell votes. There's some variation. There's a big level and variation of what they do if somebody makes a completely unsubstantiated allegation of fraud. In a lot of cases, that stuff gets labeled, but the quality of those labels vary. In some cases, those labels will be specific and say, this does not have any evidence. In some cases, it will be like, in the Facebook's case, a lot of the times, it's just a link to here's the election results, um, which is kind of useless, right? So there is a decent amount of variation. You know, these companies, there's no laws here. There's nothing controlling them. There's been these crazy conspiracy theories about DHS censoring these platforms. But the truth is, if you look at their rules, their rules are very, very different. Their enforcement is very, very different. They're clearly not under the control of the White House. And that's, I think, a normal thing for having all these different platforms. But it does mean that you will see very different kinds of calls on different platforms. Speaking of crazy conspiracy theories and the terrifying state of rising political violence in this country, there was obviously the despicable attack against Paul Pelosi in the last few days. And we are somewhat numb to political violence with the New York Times uh, reporting that below the fold. Um, but it is, of course, because everything is, it is also a content moderation story as these crazy conspiracy conspiracy theories have spun out across the web with Elon Musk himself also retweeting and then deleting his retweet of speculation about a conspiracy theory about the cause of that attack. So Musk has to be everywhere, right? Like any controversy we have, he's going to have to play a part of it. Yeah, you know, as, as you said, horrible attack against Paul Pelosi. He's the Forrest Gump of, uh, yes. <laughs> of awful dumpster fires these days. Yeah. Um, and you have this 87-year-old man call 911 and leave it open while he's being attacked. I think a lot of credit goes to the 911 operator who figured out what was going on and got police there before he was killed. Um, I believe he is still in the hospital with a broken skull here in San Francisco. And, you know, the, the person who carried it out has a personal blog who's, you know, has always ascribed to 
crazy beliefs. Those look like crazy beliefs on the left. And he's gone to the right, which is a pattern we have seen a lot of people who have kind of an openness to really populist things are being controlled beliefs. Left, right doesn't matter as much as the fact that there's an idea that there's a constant conspiracy out there making things bad for them. Um, and most recently, he has been more of a conspiracist on the right. But what then we saw was this explosion from all different parts of the right-wing media, from the lowest kind of total fake news sites all the way up to Fox News themselves, which is really the pinnacle, the crown jewel of right-wing media, trying to spread disinformation about this, just ask questions, throw out lots of garbage. And it's a very Putin-esque strategy, right? Which is a lot of the disinformation in Russia that's aimed at Russians themselves, which is much more disinformation than we see come out of Russia, right? That's one of the things you always have to think about the Russian disinformation campaigns is most of that stuff is aimed at Russians themselves. Is that whenever anything happens, you hear all these crazy theories that are an interpretation of the facts that are not true, and nobody has to believe any of them, but the fact that there are 12 different theories that are thrown out there makes people kind of nihilistic and believe that nothing is true. And that helps Putin stay in control, and that's exactly what we're seeing starting with Fox News at the top and then trickling down to all these organizations is throwing out these crazy conspiracies, just asking questions, we need to know more. The head of the RNCC was on uh, Face the Nation this weekend, and... Honestly, I, I'm just going to say it. He sounded like a scumbag because he was asked about this and said, well, we need to know more, but I condemn all violence, which is like a really scumbaggy way of implying that there is something unknown that is a dog whistle to his listeners. And that came from a elected member of the House of Representatives who is the head of the Republican committee, uh, congressional committee. So Musk fell for the lowest end of this, which is the quote unquote Santa Monica Observer, which is one of these just complete fake news sites that puts out crazy stuff, gets people to click. And what we have found is that you can create a fake newspaper as long as you have the name of a city and then something that sounds like a newspaper name and you put them together and you can run it out of Macedonia or run it out of Pakistan or India. You have low-cost labor who create all of this English language content for you. And if the world's richest man can fall for it, it does demonstrate how it's really compelling for lots of people. So it, it, just a, a really sad day. And like you said, the New York Times, which is supposed to be the pinnacle here, totally downplayed this as well. And it's kind of shocking. Like, who are we supposed to rely upon if you can't reply in the New York Times to really aggressively cover a story about the attempted assassination of the third person in line for the presidency of the United States? Yeah, and it's not clear that we can content moderate our way out of this mess either, which is often people's reaction to a lot of mis disinformation. But, you know, as you're saying, when it's Fox News, when it's Elon Musk uh, and it's coming from the top, um, you know, a few extra stronger rules and, and getting the stuff down the bottom isn't going to make a lot of difference, which is, you know, the, the findings of Ben Claret L in the lead up to the 2020 election as well. It's when it's coming from the top, that's it's it's not, you know, necessarily a social media problem, although of course social media does also amplify those dynamics as well. So, I mean, the only upside is Musk was shamed into deleting his tweet. So there is some level of at least he got embarrassed that he got taken by such a scummy no quality website. And so perhaps that's a little tiny bright spot here is that there's a little bit of shame left in some of the people who don't want to at least look like they're being used. Take our wins where we can find them. Thanks for that attempted optimism. Um, I'm trying. <laughs> so 
we did mention this over the weekend, but I do think it's a it's a story worth mentioning again because it is getting lost a little bit, which is the fine in Washington state where a King County judge ordered Facebook to pay a maximum penalty for its campaign finance violations of $24.6 million, um, which was the maximum uh, penalty, as I said, for 822 violations of Washington disclosure laws. When you run political ads in the state, you have to have transparency around them. And Facebook just hadn't done that. I, you know, $24.6 million and no one at Facebook's going to lose sleep over that. But I do think that, you know, there's this push for greater transparency and not just relying on voluntary transparency from the platforms in, in political advertising. And so, you know, this could be the sign that other states may act on this as well and get more transparency. The judge's judgment wasn't particularly detailed. It didn't have any First Amendment analysis. I would be really surprised if Facebook doesn't sort of appeal this and and, and see what it can do in terms of uh, challenging the constitutionality of that, as we're seeing in a bunch of other places. But I do think it's really interesting that this is the start, potentially, of, of many more legal transparency obligations on these platforms as well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting couple of things here. One, Facebook has the best ad transparency of any platform. So it is a weird target other than, you know, people don't like Facebook. So it's it's always a good target. The other reason it's targeted is because of these transparency requirements, a number of platforms have dropped political ads totally, including Twitter. And so I think it's great to have transparency requirements. We have called for that in a report we did several years ago um, on at the federal level. I really don't think they should be state by state. I think 50 different transparency requirements is just a silly way for us to do stuff as a country, uh, quite like Australian rail gauges. Uh, <laughs> this is the reason why we should have a, a federal You're going to go to a federation uh, and, and uh, right. unified United States of America uh, to avoid political, different political disclosure laws. Right, political <laughs> rail gauges. Yeah. Right. And so I think it would be great, but there, this is something that we're just going to have to also keep an eye on, is you want those requirements to exist. You want them to be fairly applied. We have almost no transparency on any other platform than social media, right? So... You, know, uh, you get no transparency from the radio, which Drive Time Radio is full of terrible, terrible political ads, and there's no archive of those, and there's no way to see who's paying for them. We don't have it from Fox News or from local TV stations. I believe, in fact, that local TV stations, correct me if I'm wrong, are required to run certain political ads. Right. Like, they can't actually decide not to. Um, and so there's this interesting, where it's even on the opposite side, where they carry everything with absolutely no transparency, and they have no ability to have any policies about what they do and do not carry. Um, we don't have any transparency from the, the newspapers. You know, the New York Times runs a massive first-party advertising network and has absolutely no transparency about the ads that run on NewYorkTimes.com. So if I think it's great to have these rules, but they should be fairly applied and not just used for, like, this feels a little bit like a political one-off uh, that a lot of people get to be happy about uh, the, the outcome and to go do press conferences but doesn't actually make anything better. Um, okay. Uh, but I think we're also probably going to see is it might be possible this is the last cycle where Facebook carries political ads. It is a tiny part of Facebook's revenue and it is a huge amount of pain and suffering um, that comes from it. And some people might celebrate that. You have to decide whether or not you think pushing political ads back onto television instead of online makes it better for people who are not incumbents or who are not backed by huge super PACs, right? Because obviously the the cost of doing TV advertising, the, the minimal cost of both production and running that kind of stuff is much, much higher than online. 
Right. I mean, the interesting thing about this Washington state law is that it is a broad-based law. It didn't target only online advertisers, which I think is interesting um, and maybe made it more likely to, to survive any challenge. But I, you know, I have no knowledge of how broadly it's been enforced and applied. And, you know, this was certainly extremely high profile. The AG in the state was, you know, making a lot of announcements about it. Very proud that this was the largest ever campaign finance violation fine. And so, I, I you know, it, it definitely seems to be motivated by that, you know, anti. Great. Yeah. So let's, let's see. Let's see this for other forms of media right it it, like i I keep on seeing like the the uh influence peddlers and the lobbyists for certain media companies trans you know highlight this while they themselves their members have absolutely no transparency at all um it would be nice it's just kind of to see those kind of scummy people on twitter you know celebrate this that's fine um but i do think the ag needs to come for all the other kinds of online advertisers or not just online advertisers but all kinds of political advertisers yeah. And I think you're right about Facebook, you know, saying that it's going to eject from political advertising if it, if a lot of this uh, becomes more broad based. I believe it did actually try to do that in Washington state and ban taking political ads, but it had failed in certain instances, which is why this fine uh, applied. And it reminds me of when there was discussion a couple of years ago, Facebook said it would start de-emphasizing political content in people's feeds and everyone celebrated. But it's not clear to me that it's great for democracy if the place where a lot of people go for democratic discussion and, and political news and things like that is de-emphasizing. Like, it seems to me to be counterproductive to just not want people to know what's going on in politics. Right. And deciding what is political, right? Like that de-emphasization really focused on things like they they started downranking news sites and such. Um, And so you start up, you stop upranking like content created by your uncles and aunts. And that is also, there's not a great empirical evidence, but there's some anecdotal evidence that this led to some of the QAnon and other things that are ground-based cults and uh, crazy conspiracy theories that instead of them coming from foxnews.com, they're now coming from your crazy uncle um, because that stuff's getting ranked up a little bit more. So yeah, it, it is, there's no clean answer here. People like to parrot, you know, these people should get rid of ads or they should get rid of this or that. And it turns out that like every, any change you make, the actual downstream impacts are incredibly complicated. Right. So anything else you wanted to cover before we close up for the, for the week? Well, I think the one other thing that happened last week is there, there's a new draft of the Digital Services Act. Is that correct? And so, you know, I guess we're was still... finally passed, yeah. Finally passed, yeah. And, and the, uh, the final text released, yeah. Yeah, and so this is something I think we mentioned last episode about Musk and, and Twitter, but it's a you know massive regulatory package in Europe to regulate online platforms. Uh, it has a whole bunch of risk assessment, auditing, disclosure obligations, due process obligations, appeals to independent third, third-party arbiters for the massive platforms known as VLOPs or VLOPs. Uh, I think we're going to have to come to consensus oh, on God. how to pronounce the very large online platforms acronym that they've adopted, and it's going to come into force over the next few years. And And I think, you know, the big question is, how is any of this going to be enforced? Uh, The language is very general, very broad. And so, you know, it's going to be a full employment program as Elon Musk is employing all of the uh, the, all the employment lawyers are getting jobs over here. uh, All the (laughs) Internet lawyers are getting jobs over in Europe as people work out what on earth any of this means. And it gets it starts to get implemented. Uh, It's going to be a massive scramble. Yeah. Just as we saw GDPR, you have that broad language. And so you end up you have to wait for a local uh, is it a data protection commissioner that makes the complaints under this, or they're going to be a new kind of rule for the actual content? The way that enforcement's going to work is there's both uh, country-specific regulators that are going to be set up to be to enforce certain country-specific requirements, and then there is a more centralized body uh, in the, going to be set up in the European Commission to enforce some of those uh, rules against the, the very largest platforms. So it's very GDPR-like in that you can have a complaint from Italy that works its way through the Italian court system and then eventually to Luxembourg, and yeah, and years and years of lawyers writing briefs in multiple languages. Right, yeah. They have tried to sort of centralize some more of the largest uh, 
uh, obligations through this European Commission uh, role, in particular in response to the kerfuffle that was the implementation of the GDPR, but there's still all of these decentralized monitoring and uh, enforcement uh, mechanisms. So yeah, it's, it's going to be fun trying to keep track of all of that. Okay. Well, plenty for us to talk about then. Excellent. Yes. And so that has been your moderated content news roundup for the week. This show is available in all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And show notes are available at law.stanford.edu forward slash moderated content. This episode wouldn't have been possible without the research and editorial assistance of John Perino, policy analyst at the Stanford Internet Observatory, and is produced by the brilliant Brian Pelletier. Thanks also to Alyssa Ashdown, Justin Fu, and Rob Huffman. See you next week, unless Elon Musk does something truly explosive in the meantime.